0: Welcome, everyone, to the Berkeley Center for Law and Technologies. Last Week in Texas. We are here on April 27th and actually going to cover a couple of weeks because Michael has been on a wonderful voyage. Um, so once again, we have the, the great Michael Smith with us, um, fresh back from a transatlantic trip. So welcome, Michael.
1: Thank you. It's very good to be back.
0: Well, well, first of all, the, the transatlantic trip, with that introduction, you have to tell us where you've been and how you got away from uh, the law office.
1: Well, we had. Uh, I was in the last trial about a month ago and I told my wife, I don't think I can make it till July. I've had seven trials in federal court in the last year, which is a little heavy. Uh, so we decided to take a uh, transatlantic and just relax for a couple of weeks. So we left out of uh, Fort Lauderdale went uh, six sea days to the Azores, and then a couple of ports in France, and then ended up in Copenhagen, Denmark, and uh, had a very relaxing trip. It's the first trip we've taken like that without the kids in 12 years, so that was very nice.
0: Well, it's a, it's a good way to, to get past seven trials.
1: So. <laughs> it, it is. I t- my, my wife saw me sleep 16 hours the first night on the ship, and she thought something was wrong. I said, no, I, it, I'm just out of email range. That's all.
0: There's, there's something to be said for that. Um, yeah, yeah. I did enjoy my time at the federal government when somebody told me, take all your, your vacations outside the United States because you're prohibited from taking any communication device, US communication device across the border. That's so if you point. go to Mexico, and you respond, it's actually a crime. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I got to uh, remember I, that. That's I, good.
0: I got it. I understand. And what I saw is people taking their vacations to Mexico or Canada or Europe. And I got it. I understand. So, well, with with that, um, I guess we get back to the practice of law. And let's start with the, the Eastern District of, of Texas.
1: Well, speaking of the practice of law, one of the things that happens after you try a case is there are post verdict rulings. And I had an interesting week three weeks ago on Wednesday, I had a judge set aside a verdict in a case. And then the next day on Thursday, I had a judge affirm the jury's verdict in another case. So the the first one was granting a new trial in a patent case in Marshall, where Judge Gilstrap granted the plaintiff's request for a new trial and assessed half the plaintiff's expenses preparing for the first trial on the defendant. And the order was based on the defendant's discovery the night before the trial started, that the client had started selling a product with a new part. So the court determined that what would be appropriate in that case would be to set aside some rulings and have the parties start over. And the parties have already submitted a schedule uh, to conduct the retrial in September. Uh, That was the bad news. The good news came in the next day when we got orders uh, by Judge Mazant in a medical malpractice and RICO case that affirmed the jury's findings um, in the face of a motion for judgment matter of law on the RICO claims. It was a very complicated trial we had last summer with Judge Mazant. So the order is very detailed, goes into what what the case was about, what the jury did, what the law required, and then applies the standards to that. So so a very good good couple of opinions from Judge Mazant there.
0: Well, it's that that first one from Judge Gilstrap, the, the level brands case that the new trial was granted with half of the expenses. So um, an interesting ruling but a pretty good description of why that happens there. And the
1: court and- the court does lay out his rationale. He lays out how he how he sees what happened. Uh the parties had very very strong opinions about what happened and what didn't happen and the court figures out what he thinks is the appropriate remedy in that case uh and directs the parties to proceed accordingly.
0: And and I not sure if you can answer this but it seemed to me the judge came up with what you said a remedy rather than the necessarily a sanction he was just trying to to make things right
1: oh no no that's that that was that was clear I think from the order he was trying to figure out what do we do to get back to the point where the case that's in front of the jury can include what what all the parties claim are the necessary facts, and and he opted for okay, just go back and retry it, add in this additional, and then uh, the parties will go back, do additional discovery, and then we'll see what the what actually happens at the new trial. But it it'll be an interesting case. I was I was fortunate earlier in my career to to have uh, essentially three consecutive infringement cases with the same plaintiff against different defendants, but it was the same trial team. It was the same product. It was a supplier uh, that was defending the cases. So I've been in a situation where we tried the same case back to back over and over and over. So this isn't the first time I've been through this. It, it, it will be an interesting experience, but uh, it, it's kind of fun trying the same case again, because the things that work the first time may not work the second time or or vice versa. I mean, you realize after you see your witnesses how they do the first trial you can make some decisions in the second trial about what you're going to do but the other nice thing about it is and as hard fought as these cases are is that what i've seen is when you try a case against the same lawyers when you see them again i mean you really don't like these people the first time but by the time you've been through the fire with them they end up being people that are good friends that you enjoy working with so i can already tell we're working together better. Uh, the longer things go on. So that's, that's one, of the, one of the benefits. I'm, I, I may not be happy about having to try a case over, but there, there are a few fringe benefits to it.
0: Well, and for younger lawyers that are looking at this, it, it seems that one takeaway is there's, there's a difference between sanctions for bad behavior. Yes. And a remedy to fix something that was a mistake or less than optimal, just to get right. it back to fair. Uh, right, and
1: this is a good example of uh, lawyers finding out something and taking actions and the court recognizing the actions that they took and then um, uh, acting accordingly. So it's, it's. I mean, there are things to be learned from it. Well,
0: you, you know that some lawyers would be tempted to find something out and then promptly forget it the eve of trial and try to get by with it if they could, and that's always the wrong choice.
1: Right. Exactly. Exactly the wrong choice. You mentioned that something can cannot be a sanction. If that had been the action, uh, you might have seen a different kind of order.
0: Yes. Um, well, we, we get to move on to some more martial work, uh, a couple of verdicts here that uh, are, are pretty interesting.
1: Yeah, we had two, since the last time we spoke, we've had two patent verdicts out of Marshall. In one case in Judge Gilstrap's court, uh, the jury found that the defendant willfully infringed some patents having to do with a pharmaceutical and awarded $41.8 million. A couple of weeks later, a Marshall jury in Judge Gilstrap's court found that the defendant had not infringed any of the asserted claims, and there weren't any defenses that were submitted. Apparently, there weren't any invalidity claims. It was just infringement. So, it, it's kind of what we what we're used to. It's ping pong across the street. Plaintiff will win one, defendant will win one. Plaintiff will win one, defendant will win one. So that's uh, that's kind of what we've seen over the last few weeks.
0: So, Michael, I, I would say that these two cases look different in the way they were set up. You know, the first one had your standard infringement and your willful infringement. So there was a lot of opportunity to, you know, as George Chandler used to say, back the dump truck up. Right. Um, you to, to tell a better story. And then the, that was the, uh, the Sanco case, but this Segan case, uh, that's kind of an odd verdict form where it's all infringement. How did that get there?
1: Well, th- well, the, the, that that's Judge Gilstrap's typical verdict form. He submits a, do you find that any of the claims were infringed in most cases as one question, whether the parties. Want something different or not? He, he, he has a philosophy that that's a better way of submitting it. So that was the normal question. What was unusual was that there then wasn't a invalidity question after it, but the defendant simply may have decided that they didn't have any invalidity arguments to make and that the uh, case was much more uh, better suited for infringement. I remember uh, a case in, in trial back in, in uh, Tyler back in 2007, where the local counsel finally convinced the defendant, don't contest infringement, just contest invalidity. And that ended up being the key decision that got a defense verdict in in Judge Davis's court, because the defendant wasn't getting whipsawed, taking a bad infringement position and having that damage their invalidity position. They may have decided here, our invalidity positions are complicated. They're not really great. Why don't we just make this about uh, infringement? So that may have been a deliberate tactical decision to not assert everything that you could assert.
0: Well, and, and this is, you know, I guess, a, an example of how it can how it can work out. It also helps with your timing; you, you get a little more time to put on your non infringement case.
1: Well, it, it it does, and my recollection is, I was I, as I said, I was on vacation when that came out, but I think the verdict came out on Thursday, so that was one of those four day. Patent trials when normally if it's a full boat it takes five now the one I had in uh, February was a four day and that is a little unusual so so it did look like it was a simpler case. Uh, It may also have been a case where the plaintiff just simply didn't have a very strong case the defendant felt like taking it to trial and didn't need that long to dispose of it. So I'm sure there will be 285 motions and J Mauls and things like that. And I'll be interested to see what the court has to say about about the relative merits of the case. That's always interesting.
0: Well, the the next case that may be my favorite of the last two weeks is the the Longhorn case. and We all know that there's constant wrangling over non-infringing alternatives and expert opinions, Uh, but I I love this case. You read the first half of it as the lawyer that that filed for the motion. You're excited. And then you get to the second half (laughs) and not so excited, whipsawed.
1: And again, that's the same case that we've just been talking about the patent verdict. So that might have something to do with what got presented. But, yeah, the plaintiff dropped a patent, a product, and the defendant realized, oh, I just got a gift here. This is a non-infringing alternative. And the judge says, okay, that was sufficiently disclosed because of how late it came out but you still have to go through the analysis. You just can't say, oh, the plaintiff was asserting it, now they're not. You have to go through the analysis. So that, that is kind of a teaching moment to me that if I get something like that, I need to make sure that my expert still steps through the different requirements in order to express an opinion on it.
0: Right, you, it, it, it's such a, a straightforward proposition. You can't rely on non-assertion of infringement as affirmative proof of
1: infringement just build out your claim charts. Right, right, right. Exactly. And they, they could have done this, uh, but didn't, but again, it worked out okay for their side anyway.
0: Well, it's a, it's a really good lesson. And I, and I would suspect that the rest of the courts will, will follow that if they haven't already. So, well, then we we move forward to the the United (laughs) States automobile association case. That's got a, a, good good selection of pretrial motions to learn from.
1: Oh, yeah, it's got a lot of good stuff in here. It's got the the court telling the parties that uh, you don't need rulings on matter of law bars to doctrine of equivalence. You don't need to worry about that at trial because I'm going to take that up after trial. The part that I found interesting was almost every... <laughs> Albert motion in a patent case, you're arguing that the expert is not following the court's claim construction, and I almost can't recall a case where a court accepted that. The court says, no, 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 this is within the court's claim construction. What's interesting about this case is that the court repeatedly finds that the expert is offering opinions that are, in one case, he's offering an opinion that's inconsistent with the requirements the controlling law for infringement, but in numerous uh, examples, he's saying no. What the expert is saying here is adding a restriction that isn't in the claim construction opinion. So this is one that I would study uh, to give me an idea when I'm looking at whether to challenge an expert's opinions as not complying with the Markman ruling. Uh, here's an example where a court found that an expert did that because that's pretty rare.
0: I was I was scratching my head trying to think when I've actually seen that when. And most yep. lawyers will file them knowing that it's either preserving or it's a it's a flyer
1: well, yeah, and sometimes you might get some useful language from the court, like for example, I had a trial um I think back in February where the court didn't find that one side won on the claim construction but 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 in ruling against uh, some motion seeking summary judgment, you could kind of tell where the court was, and that gave you a better idea. Uh, what the case was going to be about. But yeah, no, I'm with you. I was very surprised to see the court say, yes, this was outside the claim construction.
0: So we have a, a pair of cases uh, from Judge Gilstrap, the uh, Aregina Technologies cases. I'm not sure how they want want their name pronounced there, but this pair of cases together is really, really informative. Individually, you know, they're kind of run of the mill, but to see them back to back, on the same set of facts really does tell us about the standard for amending contentions and what the facts need to look like
1: yeah yeah it this is a Rigna's world we just live in it um they that this is a plaintiff that has cases in marshall they have cases in waco so we'll be don't be surprised when we start talking about the western district and we're still talking about the same plaintiff but no you're absolutely right we had two rulings on motions for leave to amend contentions from the same judge in the same case with the same parties. And he granted it in one case, finding that the party had exercised sufficient diligence. He denied it on the other motion saying, you didn't exercise sufficient diligence. Uh, This information was publicly available since 2003. So it, it gives you a chance to see a couple of examples of what's required in terms of diligence, which I think is very important. We even have a third uh, ruling from Judge Gilstrap on contentions in the last three weeks, and that was in the in the right question case, where the defendant's arguing that a plaintiff's contentions are insufficient. So again, we have the judge looking at what I think is the key operative documents in a patent case: the plaintiff's infringement contentions and the defendant's invalidity contentions.
0: Well, in in all of these, really seem to come down to the facts. You know, it's not necessarily the, you know, the tiny details in the charts that people want to quarrel about, but like in the first case, it was third-party discovery, and we all know how challenging third-party discovery can be. Um,
1: Right, and and we're going to be talking about some Judge Albright opinions later, trying to figure out how to phase that in, and this case is dealing with the difficulties when that discovery comes in later in the case. At what point can you still use that to add arguments to your side of the case?
0: Well, what I love about those two cases is when you read them, my, my response to both of them was, yeah, that makes sense. It seems fair, which may be your best, best measurement tool in, in dealing with these kinds of kinds of amendments. Right right
1: there are a lot of these disputes that aren't raised because you look at it and you say oh yeah well of course they did that within a reasonable amount of time this was a case where it did get disputed and and the motions in that case only had a 50 50 chance of uh, prevailing the third motion is a little bit different well it's a very different one it's a motion to strike the plaintiff's contentions complaining that well you're saying this product is representative and we think that's insufficient and Judge Gilstrap said, no, the plaintiff had identified what they think is representative and why they think it's representative. That puts you on notice here. So that's really as far as you need to do. But he also says one other thing. He says that your the defendant's complaints about the sufficiency of the contentions are essentially non-infringement arguments. Well, that's not the place to raise those. So, I mean, I, I, I really don't think I need to be spending my client's money if I understand what the claims are, I don't need to be moving to strike contentions because I think they're factually insufficient. Uh, if I need additional detail, there are ways to get that. But the wrong thing to do is to come in and say, "Well, they're insufficient because clearly they don't infringe." That's that's not the argument to make there.
0: At least in Judge Gilstrap's courts, you know, there are right. other other courts around that are a little bit more interested in almost the idea of summary judgment on these contentions they'll dig in and say well that doesn't make sense that couldn't be uh i understand but that doesn't seem right
1: that's a very good point point. and i remember early on when we were in the eastern district shortly after the district started using the northern district of california's rules the issue came up of how detailed do your contentions need to be and you see opinions out of the Northern District of Texas that require a certain level of detail. And then you start seeing opinions from the Eastern District of Texas saying, this is really intended more as a discovery aid to identify the claims, identify the arguments, not provide all the detail. So you're absolutely right. You need to know which court you're in and what that judge requires in terms of the details. This is a motion that might well have been granted in a different court that views the contentions as playing a a different role.
0: Well, and as we move on to to the 101 decisions in in Judge Gilstrap's court, we have a a nice pair of these. And I, if you would have told me there was a 12C motion on a 101 in Judge Gilstrap's court, I would have bet my car that it was denied. Right. Uh, Just knee-jerk reaction. And then this case comes along um, and I would have, I would have lost. And it's a really, it's a decision that looks more like a Northern District of California decision, right?
1: And 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 we do see these decisions. They're not common, and for reasons that that uh, Judge Albright uh, employs the vernacular a little bit more, explaining why they're not granted early on. But these two opinions kind of show, um, as you said, the first one, the Miller-Mendel case. That's really kind of show the exception that shows the rule. It's hard to get Judge Gilstrap to say that the subject matter of this patent is ineligible for patent protection. I've heard him say at seminars before, you're not asking me to simply invalidate this patent. You're asking me to hold that the subject matter of this patent is not eligible. So nobody can get a patent in this subject matter. So it's 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 a little bit bigger lift for the court than I think people uh, uh, recognize at times. But but this obviously was an example where somebody brought it as a 12C relatively early in the case and, and it worked. Well the it's, other it's go
0: it's a great example and you're gonna look through it of how you know how Judge Gilstrap views the, the thought flow to to get to that. Um, and I, I thought you know you get to the end of it and you're like yeah that's absolutely right but you could have taken his name off of it and put somebody from the Northern District of California and I would have found it routine out here. Right, unusual there.
1: Well, and, and, and one thing that I've noticed is a lot, it seems to have a lot to do with how much federal circuit authority there is on the specific subject matter. It, early on, Judge Gilstrap would deny a lot of these motions because there wasn't anything indicating that this was abstract. Well, then as the cases start piling up uh, from Lafayette Square um, saying, this is abstract. This is abstract. This is abstract. They've now got a roadmap. They know where the boundaries are, and this. I my assumption was this was an, a case where a plaintiff has got a patent that's right in the middle of an air of a thicket of federal circuit decisions that say this is not uh, acceptable. So that that I think has a lot to do with it. They didn't have those cases early on. They have it now.
0: Well, the the second case comes out the the opposite way though. It's still a without prejudice decision, but the the island intellectual property case, uh, the court turned to, to claim construction and said, not yet.
1: Oh, absolutely. These are absolutely without prejudice. Um, uh, but and in this case, the court could point to specific claim construction disputes that precluded getting to the patentable subject matter issue. And uh, again, the cases we're going to talk about from Judge Albright uh, address this. Uh, as well, it's just hard to get to that early on if a plaintiff does a good job of identifying uh, claim construction disputes um, that, that really prevent the court from getting to the subject. And again, the judge, our judges in the Eastern District, we've had federal circuit judges come down and handle dockets as district judges, and they commonly are telling, I, I recall seeing them say at seminars and at events they were speaking at, wait until you've got a claim construction, wait until you've got your ducks in a row, then you can kind of tell where you are on this stuff. So it's not surprise. this is the normal ruling here. And the reason why I think a lot of defendants defer putting the money into these uh, until your past claim construction.
0: Well, as we, we move away from the Eastern District, we, we'll stop in the Northern District and talk about the Zilker Technologies case. Um, you know we we talk so much about discretionary transfer sometimes we forget about just straight up improper venue
1: exactly and and zilker was a case where the plaintiff was making the argument we've seen a number of times in the western district recently well with the defendant's got a lot of employees in the district that work from home Uh, they've got assets Uh, they've got all this activity in the district and judge Scholler said no that's not enough for a regular and established place of business. It's not a difficult finding. It's the sort of thing that Judge Albright has routinely rejected in similar fact situations in the last year or two. Ever since we got in Ray Cray in 2017, we've had a pretty good idea that there's a pretty high threshold to predicate your regular and established place of business on people working from home. And here, these were just generic People work from their computers at home and that's not enough.
0: Yeah. It's a, it seems to be a common theme popping up. Uh, Venue is not going to be expanded just because maybe the world has changed a little bit to that, allow remote work.
1: That's, that's, that's very much the case.
0: Well, then we have, I, I like the way you, you've, you labeled this. It's a sanction for failure to proofread. Um, that's terrifying to most lawyers, but uh, the Magna Cross case gives a gives a wonderful example of, of Judge Lynn kind of maybe slapping somebody's hand uh, and, and warning others. And you know, to, Judge Lynn's really not known for for that, so this must have really irritated her.
1: We must be talking about a different Judge Lynn. <laughs> No, I thought this was. I, I thought the same thing. I knew the law. I know the lawyer. I've had cases against the lawyer that was called out here, and it was a brutal set of facts. They had filed a document that was copied and pasted from a prior case that involved the same patent, but different claims and different arguments. So it was just a horrible, horrible example of a lawyer at the hearing getting confronted with that what they had filed was not in the right in the right case. So it was pretty bad. It was interesting that Judge Lynn, uh, even though there hadn't been a separate motion under Rule 11, uh, the court said, I've given you sufficient cause and sanctioned plaintiff uh, and the counsel there. The other interesting thing, about this is we just got through talking about how, as a plaintiff, you defend against an early 101 motion by saying, look, we've got claim construction disputes, judge. We've got these three terms that we need to know what they say in order to know if this is patentable subject matter. Well, here, the plaintiff doesn't quite get that far. Judge Lynn granted summary judgment on patent eligible subject matter. And when the plaintiff was saying, oh, wait, we need claim construction on this judge, uh, Judge Lynn points out, well, at the hearing you only identified one term as requiring construction, and it's not a term in the asserted claim. Well, I, I mean I mean you got to do a better job than that if you're gonna try to play rope a dope on a 101 issue. So uh, but it was it was a there, but for the grace of God go I. I mean that re- reiterated what we all need to be aware of as far as our obligation to know. What's in our pleadings, and not rely too much on the cut and paste toolbar.
0: Well, if you just close your eyes for a minute, you can feel the the bottom drop out of your stomach when when Judge Lynn raised raised that from the bench, saying, "Hey, that term's not in any of your asserted claims."
1: Absolutely,
0: it's not a good feeling as a lawyer.
1: Absolutely, I was reading a draft uh, filing a few days after that uh, closely. And I saw something that would have been a similar situation where someone was was making an assertion that was factually just, I mean, it was a mistake. It, it was the same thing. It had come from a different pleading and nobody had checked it. And fortunately I checked it and was like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, is this correct? Oh no, that was from another case. All right, well, I'm, I'm very happy I checked on that. But that's, that's just a lesson to all of us check everything uh because there may be a good reason why something was in an early draft of a document but before you put your name on it and file it and stand up at a hearing on it you got to make sure it's like we talked about the other day don't throw your co-counsel under the bus uh, make sure it's right in the first place
0: well i remember one of my first mentors told me pretty pretty sound advice you sign it you own it yeah
1: Yeah.
0: Um, And he would not sign documents alone. Um, Interesting practice. He'd sign them with you. But if it was yours, they both both names went there. And as a very junior lawyer, that's that act of signing was nerve wracking. And it should have been. And that was the teaching lesson.
1: Well, and that was something we saw uh, several months ago. Judge Albright sanctioned all the lawyers that signed that were on a document, all of them because of a representation in the document. So if your name was on the signature block, that you you were sanctioned and you had to do the, the training and the whatever, uh, because he, he took that very seriously and essentially reiterated the obligation you put when your name's on the pleading. And I took that to heart a month or so after that, I had a situation where a client was about to file something and i, I had I had to talk them out of some specific language I never got to the point where I said, if you put that in there, my name isn't going to be on the pleadings. But that's what the result would have been, because I'm taking guidance from what the judges are saying about, I I don't want the judge pointing to me and say, why did you think this was an appropriate thing to say? Well, I didn't. Well, then why did you sign it? Why did you let them put your name on it? Judge Gilstrap said that at a uh, uh, bench bar in the last, it may have been last year, where he talked about the obligation that you have to keep your client from filing things that you know they shouldn't be filing. And, and when I was telling him and saying, well, but your honor, we get a lot of, we have pressure from, from co-counsel, we have pressure from clients. He essentially said, I, I, I don't care. Uh, uh, he, he was polite enough not to say that's why you get paid the big bucks, but essentially that was it. That's your job. It's your job to stop them from doing things that you know are going to not be well received and are going to damage their their position in the case
0: well as we we look at these ineligible ineligibility uh, claims we moved to the southern district of Texas and and this is one that when I looked at it raised some eyebrows because the technology it issues a uh, it's a gasoline manufacturing method it's a, it's a method for blending butane into gasoline but struck down under one.
1: Right, you had a, you had a court that that granted the motion as to everything but patent misuse, not infringed, uh, uh, not not eligible. I mean, summary judgment on everything except patent misuse. Uh, that that might be why only about eight plaintiffs a month file in the Southern District. That um, this is this is an example um, of the kind of case that some people would say this reflects a court viewing their role pretty expansively in terms of resolving factual disputes. So um, the, it's, uh, it, it, was an inter- it was an interesting case, but it, it's a case where the technology was not the most complicated in the world, and, and the court probably felt more comfortable with that type of technology than it might have with another one.
0: Though compared to what you were saying earlier about having a thicket of similar cases in a typical software case, this one didn't necessarily have the thicket around it, so it should be a pause for anybody looking to file a case in the Southern District.
1: Right. Well, it, it may be an indication that judges in the Southern District um, are are will have a more expansive reading of whether something is abstract or whether something is actually adding to something. Because one thing I've seen in the 101 context as... Um, uh, we can all do a pretty good job of showing how something is obvious and how something is abstract and something is whatever. We can make some pretty good arguments like that. So uh, it's not surprising sometimes, it may have just been a situation that the plaintiff didn't respond sufficiently to a really well done motion and the court didn't have a lot. The court undoubtedly didn't have by Eastern or Western district standards, the experience of patent cases that, that other courts have And it's sort of like a a 285 motion. If it's your first patent case, it's going to look pretty exceptional, no matter what happens. If it's your 200th, you realize this isn't exceptional. This is what happens in every case. Exceptional is this additional level. So I wonder if that played into it as well. Well,
0: as we'll uh, finish the the week out in the Western districts, what's going on there procedurally these days?
1: Well, the big news in the Western District is we got our our new magistrate judge in Waco, uh, Judge Derek Gilliland uh, on April 1st. And I had the uh, privilege of being in his first hearing a week later on Friday, he came out on the bench and I was appearing by Zoom and the Waco lawyers were there live and uh, uh, welcomed him to the court. And uh, he said, this is actually my first hearing of any kind. But he had already put out uh, claim construction rulings as preliminary rulings and got us out uh, a written order actually yesterday and then we had another hearing with him the next day on monday on a discovery dispute so he, he he's the second magistrate judge in the courthouse judge Mansky is going to focus on criminal matters and half of the court civil docket judge Gilliland will help on patent cases and the other half uh, of the uh, Civil docket, but I think I've talked about him before. We know him well. He's a he's an East Texas uh, lawyer from Longview, but has a background in Waco, and uh, it's it's going to be really nice having having him. The court is already sending him motions uh, uh, to deal with constantly, but it 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 was a a pleasure being before him in that first hearing, uh, and he's going to be a real asset to the court there. I think what you're going to see is more detailed, uh, more substantive opinions on issues, uh, there will be less need for the court to resort to shorter uh, opinions uh, that appear more conclusory because the court now has Judge Judge Gillilan plus his law clerks to share the docket here, plus the, the filings in the Western District have dropped some, they're equalizing with their resources a little better, so I think it, we'll see some significant changes in the in the docket for the good as a result of Judge Gilliland coming on board. Well, we
0: have a, what the Dennis' trial and a verdict that came back in it during your your voyage. Um,
1: yes, we had uh, the jury found uh, both claims infringed uh, and infringed under induced infringement, and that the infringement was willful it set the damages at not quite 12 million. And I asked, well, what did the plaintiff ask for? What did the defendant say? And the plaintiff had asked for 22 million and the defendant was had a range that centered on 1 million. So it's closer to the plaintiff than the defendant, but it's still not everything they were asking for. But and that's the only the, completed patent trial out of the Western District in the last few weeks.
0: Well, and I, and I like those numbers, they, they both seem, Seem reasonable. I'm always skeptical when a defendant comes in, and you know, one side's asking for 50 million, and they say, "Well, the right number is 12,000." Right, right. That's a good way to make all your experts hated.
1: Well, it, it, and and there's there's a couple of schools of thought on that. There's the school of thought that you're putting an anchor in the ground, and I've seen martial juries get pulled. What I felt they were pulled down by that anchor, and they went closer. But you can also completely blow your credibility and like a case that I saw out of the uh, Beaumont division a few years ago, they completely ignored the defendant's argument, the defendant's metrics as far as the number of transactions that were relevant to infringement because they put out such a ridiculous number. So you have to figure out how to be a pig but not be a a hog. Well that takes us to the
0: the Trial that should be going on, and that's the the VLSI case that uh, drew a lot of news because it was canceled.
1: Yeah, this is as as people watching this will know, this is the third VLSI versus Intel trial. Uh, the first one, the plaintiff got a verdict, a little over 2 billion in, in a trial in Waco. The second trial, the defendant got a defense verdict. The Federal Circuit required this one to be held in Austin, and I am of the school of thought that it's it's more difficult to have a trial in a large courtroom, in a large courthouse, in a large city during COVID. Uh, We've had dozens of trials in Marshall and in Waco and in Sherman with only the one trial in Sherman that had an outbreak. And by the second day, uh, they already had multiple lawyers testing positive uh, in Austin. So Judge Albright canceled the trial and he'll reset it uh, later in the year. I think you're just going to have that happen uh there's a reason why the austin courthouse has been shut down and and i think it's going to be difficult to get through a trial uh in a courthouse where you don't have the the court can't control the uh, the protections for the jury and the trial team as well as as well as in a small town i mean when you try a case in waco the only place you are is you're on this you're in a little hotel you're meeting in the few rooms that you're in you take a car straight to the courthouse and you never go anywhere else i suspect it's a little different in austin
0: well you know one of the the great things that you always bring to the table is a an understanding of the procedures you know the, the sausage making um it's that dennis's case got a trial but we've got to have some pre-trial rulings uh what did you what could you pull out um, of what happened there.
1: Oh, that was great. Uh, I, I, I sat through a pretrial conference in Waco uh, in January, and that was very enlightening because there's stuff going every which way, and you get a good feel for what the court's doing. The great thing about this dent disorder uh, at the pretrial conference is it looked like what i saw happen in january the judge required the parties to submit some limited supplemental briefing on a claim construction issue that came up and he was going to address that then he said uh party you can take a deposition on the subject and non-infringing alternative send me that and i'll take that into consideration on expert motion Uh, We've still got disputes on what's in the courts, preliminary construction, send me stuff on that. So that order is a good example, as you said, of the sausage making that happens at a pretrial in Judge Albright's court. There are a lot of moving parts. Things are not quite as buttoned down as uh, practitioners in the Eastern District might be used to. So this is a good order to let you know, these are all things that you may have to do if I've got a trial in front of Judge Albright, I already know I'm going to have uh, submissions that are due between the pretrial conference and trial. I'm probably gonna have depositions that have to be taken. So I know to have the trial team ready to go handle that and do it, and to be prepared at the pretrial conference. So when the judge does that, I know, yeah, we can do that. So-and-so can handle a deposition either live or, or whatever, because some courts that doesn't happen, some courts, it does. This is a good warning that in this court, it does.
0: Well, again, I think you you said it. This is uh, an order to take a look at because it, it is different than the Eastern District and and shows, I think, two things, like you said, Michael. One, what's happening and two, the types of things you better be raising or you may be waiving.
1: Right. Well, for example, a, a lot of A number of the issues here had to do with I I mentioned the parties were directed to submit limited supplemental briefing on claim construction issues. Judge Albright has indicated a more of a willingness to look at claim construction issues on the eve of trial. I don't think he likes it any better than any other judge does, but he's more willing to look at that. And I've had a number of cases where that's happened. So I know that that's something to take advantage of to raise those issues. I know it's something that I may have to defend against at trial, but just be aware that arrow is in the quiver in a way that it usually isn't in an Eastern District trial. It's, it's much more rare to have a party raising claim construction issues uh, during trial or, or on the eve of trial in the Eastern District.
0: So Judge Albright had a chance to do a, a 101 motion against one of the parties we've we've already talked about. So they've moved from the Eastern District to the Western District now. Um, tell us kind of what we can learn here and what you see is kind of the interplay between the Eastern and Western district on these litigations.
1: Well, we've got we've got a couple of 101 motions, uh, orders from Judge Albright. Uh, and and they they do provide, we've got some very good um, I mean, to me, I'm a former law clerk, boilerplate is not a bad word. We've got very good boilerplate here telling you, here's what the standards are. Here are the difficulties that I, as a judge, have in resolving these motions at this stage of the case. Here are the difficulties I see with the federal circuit authority with, I I can't tell what I'm supposed to do in some cases. So in one of the cases, he's able to go through and say, nope, uh, you don't meet the test for this. These are not abstract and these, you don't get summary judgment on this. Mm But in the other opinion, the MCOM opinion, he puts the same stuff in there, but he talks about what he calls the uphill scrabble that accused infringers are facing when you raise 101 in a 12b6 motion. It's a very difficult procedural context to raise it in that motion. Now, you can raise it then lose and raise it later, but he points out why that's not a particularly favorable uh, way of addressing it. And these opinions taken taken together they tell you how this judge views this area of the law. And then I'll go back and I'll get my facts and we'll do I think I can get past what he's saying on this. Three years ago, we didn't have as much of a of a book uh, on on Judge Albright on what he thought of things. Now you've got these very well reasoned opinions that say, here's what I think. So I can go back and decide if it's worth my client's money to raise the issue at this point.
0: So Michael, uh, a case that Seems inconsequential, but it's just a great warning about how not to annoy a judge. Is the the cost case, and right. this this motion for sanctions, which again should always be approached cautiously. This does not seem to be a good example of caution.
1: Yeah, it's uh, there was a the complaint was that the defendant didn't timely provide a witness's contact information, and the court said, well, it looks like they didn't have it. But in any event, the violation was harmless. I mean, I, I I would never raise that. I might like to, but I would never raise that if I knew that the harm can be addressed. I mean, what's the complaint? Well, I didn't know they were there. Well, okay, now you know, what do you want? Deposition, what? Um, right. I mean, the violation was harmless under the facts of that case. That's the sort of thing you really just don't need to bother the court with. There have been some other recent opinions from Judge Albright that are along the same lines where he says, "Don't." this is not this is not worth uh, raising. We're getting more detailed rulings from Judge Albright on discovery issues as the docket slows a little bit and as he has Judge, Judge Gilliland. So we're getting better examples like this that we can put in front of our co counsel and say, Come on, don't take this to the judge. What is it that we need? Well, I really wanted to take that deposition. Okay, we'll ask him for a deposition. If they stiff arm us, then we can go to the right. court. But if they fix the harm then you're not gonna you're not gonna piss off the judge at them you're gonna piss off the judge at you
0: well and that that's actually a good reminder to both sides you know mistakes things happen yeah. witnesses pop up late uh, addresses were wrong things happen fix it among yourselves and then failure to fix it is a different sanctionable issue than the mistake that got you there so,
1: right right
0: uh, yeah. but this one this one surprised me. I'm like, I wonder who was brave enough to file that.
1: <laughs> well, one thing I, I recall in in the order that Judge Gilstrap and Judge Schrader put out a number of years ago about discovery issues, they recognized when changing up the Eastern District or the rule that they applied on meet and confers and discovery issues to require lead and local to be on at a certain point and no one else. They wanted the middle lawyer dropped out because mm-hmm. what they had seen over and over and over is that there is a level of lawyer that works on these cases that has no authority to do anything but say no so their idea was make that lawyer educate lead counsel and then the next meet and confer before you get in front of the judge it's lead and local and that person's out of the picture because they felt that that would that would resolve more disputes I'm, i'm not saying that's 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 correct or not but it does indicate that the court sees that there are there are lawyers who are not really looking at the big picture, and all they know to do is, well, no, I'm entitled to that, so I want it. Right.
0: Well, um, as we move still through some of the other procedural issues, Judge Albright seems to have had many opportunities to struggle with the idea of alternative <laughs> services, or alternative service, and the appraisal system's is another example of that. But it seems here he's updated his rationale a little bit to make clear what he'll be doing going forward
1: yeah absolutely um he's saying never mind everything that i did before because we've got a new case from the federal circuit that we have to comply with and um previously he said he, he had some cases that seemed to say that service under The Hague is more cumbersome, so therefore you can do alternative methods. He says the Federal Circuit says that won't work, so you have to show that you made an attempt to, service and, uh, to serve uh, and that it didn't work. you you got you to gotta jump through some hoops to do it. And what's interesting here is he provides some detailed comments on what the plaintiff's evidence was. They were trying to serve a lawyer that represented the defendant except that their proof didn't show that they represented the defendant. It showed that they had represented the defendant in the past. And he was like, the quote is, due to the relative ease of confirming an attorney's represent, representation, the court expects evidence of representation to be clearer. So we know now, you can't just throw in, oh yeah judge, let me just uh, let me serve somebody that I know represented him five years ago. So anyway, it's, it's a very it's the current, uh, gold standard for what you've got to prove in order to get alternate service in his court. And that's why I thought it was it was worth addressing.
0: Well, Michael, I wanted to, to finish the week with two more of the, the Arigna cases. And uh, th- this is the, the litigant that keeps on giving.
1: <laughs> it sure is.
0: <laughs> We've got a, a source code provision and a foreign discovery uh, case. Um, so what can we really see here about... What they're gonna they're gonna litigate for us.
1: These two cases are solid gold for practitioners. The source code one. We know now that Judge that Judge Albright has a has a protective order. But what we don't know is, well, how receptive is he to to changing? If one side comes in and says we want what's in the order, and the other says, well, we want something different. What's he gonna do? Well, this gives us a data point. The plaintiff, I mean. The defendant didn't want source code provisions at all because they didn't have source code and they said just leave that out and the judge said no i'm going to go ahead and put my language in. And the plaintiff said, well, while you're at it, can we have a provision for electronic transfer of source code, so we can get paper copies, we can get certain uh, a physical media, but we can also transfer it electronically and uh, judge Albright says. I generally default to my model protective order. I deviate as little as possible. I don't see any reason for that here. It looks like you've got the ability to do it other ways, So I'm sticking with my default order. So that goes into my data bank when I'm thinking, well, can I get a change from his default order? That's, that's a very useful uh, opinion. Uh, now on the other ruling, and th- there's actually two rulings on this one. There was a ruling by Judge, Gil- Judge Albright a while back that set aside his moratorium on pre-Markman discovery for certain discovery, trying to get going on some some Hague Convention service. So what happened in this case was the parties came in and said, well, oh, hey, we want to do some more, uh, some pre-Markman discovery here as well. And what's important on this case is what the judge says at the end of the order. It's got both sides' arguments up front, but at the end he says, this is domestic discovery and this is dealing with infringement. You don't get to do that before Markman. If it was foreign discovery, you would. Well, that was the same thing that Judge Gilliland said two weeks earlier in a hearing that we had with him, and that Judge Albright later said the same thing. So the parties now have a pretty bright line rule that if you want to do foreign discovery before the Markman, you'll probably get leave for that. If it's domestic discovery, you won't. So that's, that's a very useful thing to know when we're fighting with the other side about, well, can we get this discovery before martin? Can we start the clock early or not?
0: Well, wonderful. Uh, those are the kinds of things that should prevent lawyers from having to file motions and help clients save some, some money on attorney's fees. So. Absolutely. Well, Michael, once again, uh, thank you for,
1: for joining us and, and welcome back. <laughs> it's good to be back. Take care. All right, you too. See you next week.